This episode is sponsored by Warby Parker eyeglasses. Go to warbyparker.com slash so smart and choose your five free home try on frames. When you visit that URL, you will get free three day shipping. So what you do is you get the frames in the mail, you pick out the ones that you like, you send them back and you order. Warby Parker makes your experience completely risk-free and you get free shipping all around. And when you buy these glasses, which start at $95, including lenses, they will also, for every pair of glasses sold, distribute a pair of glasses to someone in need. So go to warbyparker.com slash so smart to pick out your glasses today. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 19. In a moment, I'm going to play for you a sound. I'm playing the sound in an effort to induce the placebo effect inside your mind, which should translate to a change inside your body. Now, I'm sure you've heard of the placebo effect and you have a general understanding of what it is, but if not, it's, uh, it's very simple. It's when someone promises you that a treatment or a substance is going to produce an effect on your body and then you take that treatment or substance and you feel the effect, even though the substance you were given can't actually chemically produce that. So you have an expectation, you have a belief, and that translates to feeling something. And that's the placebo effect. Psychologists and doctors used to demonstrate this with uh, sugar pills and things like that. And one of the cheapest ways to do that research now is to use the long fern placebo auditory battery, which is just a fancy title for what amounts to a noise, a series of noises that produce ASMR. And uh, there's sort of a subculture around ASMR. It's uh, autonomous sensory meridian response. There's a subculture. You can go online. You can go to places like Reddit and you can find ASMR aficionados who collect and produce like uh, the sounds of haircuts or soothing voices, that sort of thing. And these sounds will usually produce in most people, this tingling sensation that you felt it before, uh, on your head, your scalp, um, on the back of your neck, maybe even in your fingers and arms. Um, it's a feeling that you get when you get that nice soothing sound. It just sort of washes over you. And the way they use this in research is whenever you, um, hear the long fern placebo auditory battery, you will uh, be told, like a scientist will say, when you hear the sound, it may cause you to feel thirsty. And people will feel that tingle and then assume that something must be happening in their body. And then they actually feel thirsty thanks to the placebo effect. So let's play around with it. Let's do that right now. Um, I want to pretend, I want you to pretend that you're part of a study and um, we're just going to try it out and see if we can produce the placebo effect. Okay, here we go. When you hear the tone, you may experience a dryness in your eyes and a desire to blink or to rub them. Three, two, 
one. So if you're one of those people who can experience ASMR from that sound, did you also then feel a dryness in your eyes and a desire to blink or rub them? Well, if you did, please send me an email. Let me know because that would be really weird because I made all of this up every bit of it, except for the ASMR part. There is such a thing, but I don't even know if the sound can make you feel that way because I just made it just now. Um, there's no such thing as a long fern placebo auditory battery. Um, but there is such a thing as the placebo effect. And if I properly primed you to expect that you were going to feel ASMR right before you felt the fake placebo thing that I promised in the sort of double trick experiment, um, then maybe some of you felt a tingling. And if you did, that would not actually be weird because all sorts of strange things can be produced by the placebo effect. And that's what we're going to talk about today on the You Are Not So Smart podcast. My name is David McCraney, and I will be your host. And on each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, we explore a different topic in the realm of self-delusion, and then we find an expert to help us understand that topic. This episode, we're going to talk about the placebo effect, and we're going to learn more about it from Christy Erdahl, who is a psychologist who recently helped discover placebo sleep. Yes, placebo sleep. And uh, we're going to talk to her about placebo sleep and the placebo effect in general in just a moment. So the placebo effect is one of the most bizarre discoveries of science and also one of its most important tools. Most drugs that you take went through a trial that involved a placebo. For instance, let's say they're testing a drug that eases stomach aches. A typical study might bring in test subjects who have stomach discomfort and one group will get nothing, another will get the new drug that's being tested, and a third will get a placebo drug that has no active ingredients. And neither the people taking it nor the people administering it will know which one is which. And if the placebo drug performs better than the drug that they're testing, and better than getting nothing at all, then the scientist will say that it fails to cross the futility boundary, or that it works no better than placebo. And since the 1960s, we've used this as a method of testing drugs and treatment, uh, thanks to Henry K. Beecher, who is a doctor and an ethicist that discovered during World War II that sometimes when morphine was in short supply, doctors and nurses would tell soldiers that they were about to receive morphine when in fact they actually received saline. But the soldiers, they felt relief and that amazed Beecher so much that he launched the research that has led to both our modern understanding of placebos and the way we do double blind placebo controlled testing for drugs and medical techniques to see if they actually work or if the effects are just like that saline that he saw used to ease the suffering of soldiers. So when you hear that something like homeopathy or power balance bracelets or healing touch works no better than a placebo, you can thank Henry Beecher for that. Even though human beings have known about the placebo effect for a very long time, going back to before written records even, and Beecher didn't name it the placebo effect, but he did 
popularize plugging it into the scientific method, which has led to some weird outcomes recently. Steve Silberman, the science writer, he wrote this fascinating article in Wired magazine in 2009 about how the placebo effect is getting stronger over time. In other words, drugs that passed testing years ago are now not able to pass that same testing. They can't cross the futility boundary. And many of them, uh, especially antidepressants like Prozac, are up for scrutiny now. As Steve wrote, uh, things like gene therapy and Parkinson's and stems, uh, gene therapy for Parkinson's and stem cell treatment for Crohn's disease, things that should work better than placebos are now starting to be overtaken by the effectiveness of placebos. That effectiveness, he wrote, has um, has risen by like 20% in just the 2000s. But antidepressants are the drugs that are getting hit the hardest. And Silverman said that about 7 in 10 new antidepressants now fail placebo trials. And why is that? Well, the speculation is that probably it's advertising. Because before commercials for antidepressants and other drugs became commonplace on television, those drugs did better in testing because there was a lot less expectation that they would work. So the ads have sort of backfired, building people's confidence and familiarity, and thus that has led to greater expectation and then a more powerful placebo effect in the lab, which ironically has made it much more difficult for new antidepressants to cross that futility boundary. So this is still something scientists are working to understand and to incorporate into testing. And it might surprise you that scientists are studying the placebo effect this very minute, still learning new ways it can mess with your mind and still trying to figure out what exactly is going on here. For instance, if you give people non-alcoholic beverages, but tell them it's alcohol, they will get drunk. And I don't, I don't mean feel drunk. I mean, um, physiologically in a brain scanner, things will be happening to their, to their brain and their body that very much resemble what happens when a person drinks alcoholic beverages. If you give a person a drink without caffeine in it, but you tell them it does have caffeine in it, then they will have a hard time falling asleep. If you give men a placebo that you tell them has a side effect of impotence, then they will experience that side effect, even though there's nothing at all in the pill that they just took that could cause such a response. Whenever you get that negative effect, it's called a nocebo, but you see how it's similar. And Fake pain relievers, they ease pain, even if they're topical. And fake electrical stimulation can prevent seizures if the person expects that they're getting the electrical stimulation that would prevent that seizure. Fake hypoallergenic products will fail to produce allergic responses in people who are actually allergic to the material. The same placebo that can cause people to feel relaxed will make them feel tense if you describe it differently. And placebos can work in children uh, or animals. And weirder still, two placebo pills will have a stronger effect than just one. And um, an injection will work better than a pill, even though if they're described in the same way. And everything, no matter what, how it's administered, will work better if it's presented as being expensive or name brand. And placebos are also deeply affected by geographical and cultural differences. So something that might work in one region won't work in another. Um, for instance, although Americans respond better to blue placebos as downers and red placebos as uppers, blue placebos work as uppers in Italy because blue there is associated with soccer and soccer is very popular and stimulating. At least that's how the speculation goes. So the placebo effect has all these varied responses and all these varied uses, and it's um, it's it's something that we're 
continually unfurling and trying to understand. And one of the most interesting uh, recent discoveries is that you can convince people that they've gotten a good night's sleep in something that is now being referred to as placebo sleep. And that's what we're going to talk about today with our guest, Christy Erdahl. Christy is a researcher, a scientist. Uh, She's a professor of psychology. She's a psychologist. She has conducted clinical research into depression and anxiety and Parkinson's disease. And she's also studied things like uh, superstition among sports, uh, among athletes, and the effects of head injuries on athletes. So she's a really interesting person who really loves science and really understands what she's doing. And she helped one of her students conduct the research that led to uh, the discovery of placebo sleep. So let's pick her brain. Christy Erdahl, you are an expert on so many things in psychology. Oh, goodness gracious. And we're, but we want to talk about uh, something that you've recently done, some interesting research that's gotten a lot of attention, uh, mm. and that's on uh, the placebo effect and specifically placebo sleep. But before mm-hmm. we get into placebo sleep, um, I think we all have a, a layperson's understanding of what the placebo effect is, but mm-hmm. from an expert's point of view, what is the placebo effect? Well, you know, I don't think it's actually that much different, um, expert versus layperson. Uh, we think we're all familiar with the placebo effect, and even in the manner in which it's been conducted in scientific research. Uh, every drug is tested at this point with a placebo-controlled design, where uh, you uh, some groups get the real drug, if you will, some get the placebo drug, and then you see... Uh, how behavior or illness or health changes uh, at the end of those studies. And so I think most people do actually have a pretty good knowledge of how uh, placebos are supposed to work, and uh, that is the way they work in scientific research, specifically in drug pharmaceutical research. So I guess the most common example that comes to mind is um, you tell someone you're going to give them a pill to alleviate pain mm-hmm. and they don't know whether or not they're getting a real pill or a uh, sugar pill or a pill that it has uh, that is completely inert. And then if you give someone this pill that has no medicine in it and they feel that the pain has been alleviated, that is the placebo effect. There it is. Exactly. So what do we know about how that works? How does that happen? Yeah, that I think we know... A lot, but probably not as much as we want to know. Uh, the placebo effect seems to have an explanation in two, I, I would some people say competing theories, but frankly, I think they're integrative theories. Um, one is the basics of, of classical conditioning. That is, your, your body has learned over the course of 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years uh, that going to a doctor, getting a pill makes you feel better and has learned how this operates and therefore the classical conditioning uh, takes effect and when you get a new substance that an authority figure tells you is going to help your body goes into motion saying oh I know what to do and it starts feeling better Um, the other competing quote-unquote competing theory is expectancy more of a perhaps conscious process where 
you expect something to happen, and therefore you have some endogenous mechanism, uh, we're not really sure exactly what that might be, uh, that will then make it happen, will make it be so. And so whether it's conscious or non-conscious, or both, frankly, that's my vote, um, it's, it's probably operating in both of those ways. So, so, and what about it is still sort of a mystery to us at this mm. point? Yeah, for me, I, I think the mystery is what parts of the brain are really lighting up when this is happening, um, and are they unique uh, to the placebo effect, or are they just consistent with what might be happening when you're taking a real drug? Um, for me, that is the next interesting place. Neuroimaging uh, is something different happening in the brain or is the brain just engaging the typical thing that happens mm -hmm. on its own now is it for instance in that exam the typical example i've also s seen studies where people would be given mild electric shocks and they're given a cream and the cream is uh has no medicinal qualities but they mm -hmm. feel that it alleviates the pain mm -hmm. of the is are they mm -hmm. actually is this person actually experiencing pain alleviation or are they just believing that they're feeling it right and, and I, actually what's the difference right, right. <laughs> um, I think there uh, I think there's evidence to suggest in these different uh, these different experiments that they are actually having pain alleviation uh, you can tell that by certain other physiological indicators that are, are suggesting a, a decreased heart rate for instance um, there's some new research on uh, you know how, how how psychologists induce pain is by putting arms and ice cold water you know right, right. And, yeah, yeah. and and if you give uh, very different experimental protocols uh, y you can actually alleviate the elevated heart rate that is experienced when you have pain and so there are things that are changing and that does suggest that the person is not experiencing pain the way they would normally be okay so this brings up like a zillion yeah. questions, and as it should, and it's what I, okay. What, one of the things I love about this is that okay, the placebo effect is something that is now part of the scientific method. Yet, mm -hmm. yet that very thing that's part of the scientific method is also having to undergo scientific scrutiny because yes. we don't quite understand that thing either. Right, exactly. <laughs> which is which is great. I love that. It's uh, mm -hmm. um, so I think that some people a little bit of woo woo comes in here, and that and that is um. The placebo effect suggests that we have the power to make our own bodies feel less pain or to right. uh, experience certain healing effects. It, it's some way to alter the f physiology and biology of our body through belief or concentration, mm -hmm. meditation. How mm -hmm. far away is that assumption from being the truth? I don't think that's very far away at all. I think the woo-woo that you mentioned um, is when people start talking about the mind and mind control and, and things like that. Whereas I think most of us are, are quite comfortable in the behavioral sciences saying something is happening in the brain. I mean, everything we think, do, believe is electrical and chemical, you know? Right. So this has to be that as well. And we just haven't really ironed out exactly what's happening. And, you know, we haven't ironed that out for a lot of things. So I think those of us in, the air, in this area are... Um, a bit more comfortable <laughs> with a little bit of the unknown, but it's not that we think there's some, you know, aura or or 
faith-based issue or, or soul or something like that necessarily coming in. It's just something we haven't yet figured out in how the brain is exerting this control over the body um, in the way that it does with everything else, mm-hmm. with digestion, with movement, with all sorts of other things. I think what's weird about it to me is, like, uh, there's a, uh, and you mentioned this in uh, your latest paper that, you know, if you if a person pays, if two groups of people pay for an energy drink and one person pays a um, reduced price for that energy right. drink, then they will get less of a stimulating effect from that drink. And um, there's also uh, placebo alcohol, where people are told yes. they're given alcohol and they feel mm-hmm. intoxicated. Um, placebo caffeine, where people are told mm-hmm. they're given caffeine and they feel like they're getting the effects of uh, stimulation and not. Mm-hmm. Um, in your study, you, you mentioned this research that if you tell people that their job has exercise benefits in, yeah. their, in their health plan, then they actually, over the next month, will decrease and uh, have a weight decrease, blood pressure, body fat, hip weight ratio, all that stuff will be affected. And then you also go on to say that if you tell somebody that they're drinking uh, a 620-calorie milkshake, mm-hmm. but they're actually drinking a 380-calorie milkshake, right? they will experience a decline in ghrelin, a, um, a peptide. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... Yeah. What... I don't, isn't that cool? Okay, <laughs> let's just let's just put that out there. Um, that that is incredibly cool because you know that you're not conscious of of how your peptides are being. Okay, yeah. Excre- right. <laughs> so you so you know that. Um, uh, I before reading that article had no idea what ghrelin was. I didn't know what really how my gut peptides were related to what I knew I was consuming. So yeah, obviously most of us are not at all conscious about well most of the things that are going on in our body. Um, and so what? Who is conscious about this? Well, your brain seems to know. Uh, your brain controls all of this, and when you are looking at that. Uh, that shake, and you're seeing the extra chocolate sauce and the extra caramel and the extra thing, then your brain is saying, okay, we get it. We get that this is going to have a lot of calories, so we don't need to excrete the ghrelin that that we would if we were really hungry. And and it knows. <laughs> and, so, and so it does it. Uh, and I think that's the, what we're talking about, this kind of subconscious classical conditioning. Your body is conditioned over the course, again, of 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years of your own behavior to know what it needs to do uh, to keep you fit, to keep you digesting, to keep you uh, healthy, perhaps. And uh, so it it makes all these associations for you. And then when you trick it (laughs) by giving a light shake when it's supposed to be getting a 600-calorie shake, then it's going to be tricked. It's going to be tricked. That is, to me, that is... That f- I feel like I've been a door has been opened into an entire realm. <laughs> when I, it's it's almost like a Schrodinger's cat kind of core. Like like in physics, you know, there, there's that whole discussion of the microscopic world versus the mm-hmm. macroscopic world, and how and how ridiculous it is to assume that big effects and, sp- and there's a whole thing there. And then this to me is like psychology's side of that, saying yeah. I don't actually know what's going on inside of my body. I, can't, I, don't, I don't even know about. Like we're saying, right. like you were saying, I don't even know that the peptides exist. Right. But my belief in something can affect the peptides inside. Yeah. That is yeah. out of this world to me. I, um, and it's so cool. It's it's uh, if you think about you know everything your brain does. I just got through teaching introductory psychology, and to me, the whole course is 
a myth debunking class. And it's about how your brain is associated uh, with all of these interesting findings and the and classical conditioning and everything else. So it's it's really fun, really fun. Um, and it plays into I know there's I've heard some neuroscientists talk about how you know you, you should think is think of uh, what is the conscious part of the mind is not the entire oh, no. organism. No. no. And um, in many ways, it's only a very small part of the of mm-hmm. the organism. And um, the placebo effect sort of lends a lot of credit to that way of looking at things. Absolutely. And and we're not talking about necessarily about the Freudian version of the unconscious, oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and stuff like that. But from from a, a, a psychology perspective, there is a whole lot going on of which we are not aware <laughs> in our own bodies and in our own associations of things. And that really is now pervading not just neuroscience, but social psychology as well. You look at new research um, about how we form associations with new words, um, some a test called the implicit attitudes test, which is not non-controversial, but um, where it's easier to form words that uh, that are consistent with our prejudices uh, or form uh, associations between words that are consistent with our prejudices, even though we say we don't have any prejudices. Mm-hmm. So, so um, our conscious awareness of what's going on in our body and how we think about things is not always uh, accurate. Mm-hmm. And for me, you know, a lot of the, the problems often arise with the confidence and the overconfidence. Yes, yes. That, no, actually, I do know everything that's going on. And, and, but, I'm, and I know where my beliefs come from. Right. And, and all those sorts of things. Um, okay, yeah. so let's talk about the sleep study. Rarely, rarely related to accuracy in psychology. <laughs> right. so. Let's talk about this sleep study because this, you... Um, You've done what psychologists dream about doing. You've advanced mm-hmm. our understanding of the natural world. So um, if you could just sort of explain or give us an idea of what happened here in this study. Okay, first, what I have to say is, you know, I am I'm the second author on this project. I was the faculty advisor. And what your listeners might not know, but they would probably wholly appreciate, is that the first author, Christina Dragonich, uh, was an undergraduate student who came up with this idea. Uh, and uh, my job was to facilitate the idea. And so she graduated from Colorado College in 2012 and will be uh, probably applying to medical school soon. But this project for her was it started in introductory psychology. When we learned about these other, the exercise study that you mentioned and everything else, she said, well, isn't that interesting? And then did a literature review in, in our research design class and then did this for her undergraduate thesis. So um, this is not something that required a great deal of fancy uh, fancy footwork. This was this was uh, hard on the ground work about what is next in this field. Mm-hmm. And so so uh, so she did this, and I facilitated this project. It just you know my role, of course, is making sure that it's methodologically sound and and that other explanations uh, can't kind of creep in. But but that's the evolution of the project started from reading these other non-traditional applications of the placebo effect. And her interest, of course, as a college student in sleep and how sleep affects uh, your cognition was, uh, was very appropriate. <laughs> and uh, so we pursued this and we figured out um, this is how we work together. Or how can we set up uh, you know, some sort of machine to convince students 
that they had um, gotten an adequate amount of sleep or below average or above average. And uh, she didn't have to be the big authority figure, which was interesting. She was, at the time, a 22-year-old young woman, very bright, with a lot of fancy equipment, but still no lab coat, no doctor underneath her name. And she was able to convince uh, students uh, that they hooked up to this machine that they had gotten above average or below average sleep and then therefore uh, how how perhaps they were going to um, uh, perform on these cognitive tests uh-huh. so you that first of all that's wonderful and that's mm. that shows the that is a fantastic program you've got going there and mm. and that um that science is you know, a verb and a tool, which really yes. is what that, that demonstrates yes. that so well. Utilized uh, by anybody who has the capability. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me see if I understand this. You have um, participants who are hooked up to what they, be- they believe is a machine that's going to tell them whether or not they got a good night's sleep. Right. And some people are told they did get a good night's sleep and mm-hmm. some are told that they did not get a good night's sleep. Right. Randomly assigned. And then random, those uh, randomly assigned people then take a uh, test that measures their uh, cognitive um, abilities uh, yes. that is normally done after a, uh, in a sleep study. And you found what? Um, well, we found this test, by the way, the PACE, ad, the PACE auditory serial addition task is actually really hard. Uh, if you or I were to do it, we would be struggling. So it's not a test um, that would have a ceiling effect, you know, that our students would do all great on and there would be no variability. So we wanted to pick a really difficult test and has mental addition in it and, um, and is pro- prolonged. So, so, so there was a lot of variability in it. Uh, and we found that in the, in the first experiment, the paper is, uh, has two experiments in it. The first experiment, we found that when people were told they had below average sleep, they performed significantly worse on the PACESAT than they than the group that were told the above average sleep. Now the above average sleep folks performed at the norm of the of the test the test norms. So so we found the effect in the negative direction in in what we call the nocebo correct direction um, that we we messed with people if you will and then and they got worse. Um, but we didn't see in that first experiment that if you told them they got a good night's sleep they got better. Uh, and this is where, when we sent the article for publication, the, uh, the reviewers of the article said, we want to see the extension of this. We want to see how far this can go. So we would like you to run another group of subjects. We ran 100 more subjects, in fact, and, uh, and added some more measures. And these measures were some measures that we predicted would have no impact, like digit span. Your digit span, whether you sleep or, at all or not, seems to be very consistent. So we didn't anticipate uh, an effect on digit span. But then we added a couple of other tests for which we did anticipate that there would be uh, an effect of sleep either in the good direction or the bad direction. And one of them, in fact, we did find uh, this is the controlled oral word association test, which is just that uh, basically saying how many words can you think of that begin with the letter whatever in a minute. And that, that test uh, showed that when you told people they got above average sleep, uh, they actually performed better uh, than the norms. Wow. Yeah, which was which was really cool for us, of course. 
Um, and, and the pace that also was replicated, by the way, in that second experiment. So we found that negative effect too. Um, and I don't know if you realize this, but you know, this is this is um, a lot of people have written about this in the last few months and our last month or so. And the it's what's great about it is it's one of those studies that comes along that makes you go, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so right, that's something I should have known. I mean, it's it's. It's it's incredible that the placebo effect can is is um, reaching out this far. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, your study suggests that if um, if you're trying to, to create a plan for yourself to get more sleep, to get better rest, mm-hmm. that the belief in that plan and its efficacy is also an important part of that mm-hmm. plan. Yeah. Um, and would you agree that it would also be important that um, it's we should. Uh, be sure that we avoid getting into a state of mind where we may be believing that what we're doing on a, is detrimental to our sleep routine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, regardless of whether or not it is or not. Um, yeah, I, mean, I think what we showed in this study, um, and and just to be clear, we did ask the the participants how they felt they had slept the night before. And so we that was a variable uh, in the multiple regression equation, the statistical analysis that we used, but it didn't predict anything, <laughs> how okay. they thought they had slept. What right. we told them predicted everything. Wow. And okay. so um, so here's, here's the, now the potential extrapolation. Uh, what you think matters, unless someone in authority <laughs> tells you otherwise. Oh, so um, what you think absolutely matters on a day-to-day basis, because you're not in these studies, you're not going to the doctor, you're not seeing other people who are telling you otherwise. So, of course, your own mindset matters about your, uh, about your sleep behaviors and patterns and, and your attitudes, if you will, about how you sleep. Um, but what was interesting to us, of course, was how easily it was trumped by an authority figure with, in this case, a fancy machine uh, telling you, in many cases, the exact opposite of what you believed coming in. And that's what predicted the day. Wow, that is amazing. And um, that brings up an interesting point that physicians need have to understand and are trained to understand the both the, uh, you know, the benefits and the uh, drawbacks of the placebo effect in their um, bedside manner and in uh, administering uh, medication and treatment? Well, I would argue that they're definitely trained in the in understanding it in the administration of medication. Okay. Um, I think I'll, I'll just go out on a limb and say that I think psychologists, clinical psychologists particularly, have understood the placebo effect in terms of how it impacts psychotherapy uh, results um, for, you know, decades and decades. And I think the physician-patient relationship has lagged a little in its understanding of, um, of this. And, you know, I'm, I'm just going to say that maybe because I know more of the research as a clinical psychologist myself. But, mm-hmm. um, but I think that we have most certainly, as, as psychotherapists, understood <laughs> that the placebo effect is uh, an essential part of, of uh, psychotherapy. It's not the only part. There are, of course, active ingredients in psychotherapy as well, but, um, but it's, it's an essential piece. Mm-hmm. So, um, and 
I'm going to save that for a second because it's in one of the questions I'm going to ask you from Facebook, but we're going to get oh, back sure. into that in a second. And I want to go ahead and get these questions to you. Um, these are all questions that came from the uh, You Are Not So Smart Facebook page. These are all people who uh, are interested in this sort of stuff, and they are excited to have the opportunity to ask questions of an expert. So here we oh, go. Oh, excellent. Mm -hmm. so, uh, this first question comes from Rochester Jones, and he asks, does the placebo effect also counteract benefits if someone is tricked into believing they had no such benefits? For mm -hmm. example... If someone did not get a full night's sleep, uh, would their performance suffer if they believed they did not? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, I think our data do actually speak to that question. That when, like I said before, when we asked them, our, our research participants, how they slept the night before. This is before telling them anything, before hooking them up to the machine. They walked in the door and we asked them how they slept. Uh, that didn't predict anything. Uh, and so what then, after we hooked them up and told them uh, a randomized lie, if you will, that predicted everything. Mm -hmm. So I think um, his question is, you know, if someone did get a full night's sleep, presumably we had, we had many, many subjects who got fabulous night's sleeps, and we told them they didn't, and they performed like they didn't. That's... Yeah. that's that still is making my brain hurt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can I can feel the the existential crisis. <laughs> oh, that is amazing. Um, okay, so and that's an example of nocebo, correct? Yes, yes. Whenever it, you're, uh, well, go, explain if you will what nocebo is. Well, it's when, um, like in the alcohol research, when you give people fake alcohol and then they uh, and then they perform. Uh, cognitively or or behaviorally like they've had alcohol, that's a nocebo. You're decreasing their performance by something you've told them. Mm -hmm. All right. This is a question from Kenny Lim, and uh, Kenny asks, how precise are placebos? In other words, can you give a 100-milligram placebo and expect twice the results of a 50-milligram placebo? <laughs> wow. Um, that's a great question, I think, to, to be determined. Uh, but Here's how I would how I would frame it. It really matters uh, in what the authority figure, if you will, the physician typically is saying. Uh, so if it's the oh, let's just start you out on this fifty milligrams because you know this is a really potent drug, and I don't want you to get any side effects, but I want you to get the full effect. You know, then fifty milligrams should, if, if we were to do a study there, should have an effect with decreased side effects. And then you give this other group, well, you know, I'm giving you the 100, but it might have side effects, but you're definitely going to get relief. You know, you're, you're probably going to get what you ask for mm -hmm. um, in the placebo effect. So it really does matter how the experiment in that, in that situation would be framed. Um, but what what are the milligrams supposed to give to the person? Are there side effects? Are, you know, you can anticipate all of those things in an experimental protocol. Okay, so... Um, Not sure. I mean, the, the question is great. That's I don't a great question. Yeah, that, there's an undergraduate yeah. uh, yeah, right. right there. Exactly. <laughs> um, and I do know that, like, you know, the color of the pill in a placebo, the, mm -hmm. the cost of the pill, the... The, if it has a brand name on it, those things all have an effect. So, yeah. but those are things that are salient um, to the person who is about to receive that placebo. Right. Um, okay. So Kyle Taylor asked, and I'm just going to paraphrase this. Um, Kyle wants to know 
we've discussed that authority is a powerful effect. Is yeah. also um, in group, out group, uh, group think, uh, um, uh, conformity. Or do those things also play into the placebo effect? Yeah, I think they have to. The more people that are on board with what this authority figure is saying, the more likely you're going to believe it too. Uh, I don't think it's necessary in many ways because you go in and if you believe the authority figure, then this all should work. Um, But if other people do too, then it's going to have a greater chance of working. So, and we were talking earlier about this, uh, that's why I saved it. Rob Rob Terrell asks, um, what do you think is the ethical... What are, the, what are the ethical issues right. of caregivers giving out placebos and sort of, I guess, to con- that question is asking, what is the most ethical and responsible way to administer yeah. placebos? Yeah, um, that actually is a is a pretty serious question. And, and just so everyone knows, uh, you know, this study that we did went through our institutional review board here uh, for ethics review. And because we had deceived our research participants, we needed to debrief them immediately upon, uh, basically right after they had done their cognitive testing, we had to disabuse them of what we had told them and and answer any questions that they had, um, which is really important in a research paradigm when you're not treating anyone for an actual disease or disorder, uh, it's it's very important to to have your research participants um, uh, as good as or better off when they leave your lab <laughs> than when they came in. So I do want the your listeners to to know that we that we followed all of those um, those protocols, and and our research participants, like most research participants actually who are involved in deception studies are, are fascinated um, by by what we were looking at and felt like, oh, yeah, no, I completely believed this machine and and everything. Now, they didn't know their, their cognitive testing score. They didn't know whether they had tanked or not tanked or anything like that. So we were just debriefing them about the, about the research protocol, uh, and they were, of course, very interested in that. So then, that's the long-winded <laughs> uh, right. preamble to uh, doing this in uh, in real life. Um, I think your listeners probably are, are well aware that you can't go into your physician and say, "Please give me a placebo," so I feel better. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that that kind of defeats the purpose. So, so it's a very tricky protocol for physicians to be able to do something like this. Now, they're not researchers per se. If they're if they're not in a research um, uh, situation or institution, uh, just your your general practitioner out in the in the community, um, they are not going to be able to, with all of the regulations about healthcare at this point, to give an inert substance uh, and make pretend necessarily that it's going to help. Um, I imagine physicians do all the time give substances that are not necessarily expected to help a lot, but they build them up mm-hmm. in the patient's minds that, oh, this should really help. I imagine, I do not have evidence for that, but I imagine that that happens all the time within the confines of their own ethical um, parameters. So uh, 
so the ethics piece for researchers is very circumscribed. We know what we have to do prior to conducting a study. We know what we have to do as soon as our research participants have finished in our study. And we know that we have to set things up so that our research partic- participants are better off um, after when they leave than when they came in. But with um, doctors, psychiatrists, uh, they're in a different institutional setting. There are some different parameters. And uh, while I'm not a physician or a psychiatrist, uh, I can't say how far they push the envelope to the benefit of their patients. You know, uh, I don't know. Um, but I would, I, I also, and I will speculate with you that, uh, that doctors very often say, take this, you'll feel better, knowing that saying it is the more important part of the mm-hmm. equation. Um, interesting. That's, fa- that's, that's a fascinating mm-hmm. thing. Um, well, you think about, you know, uh, the, our, uh, how our country's in a pretty bad situation with antibiotics, you know, because physicians who presumably know that the antibiotics are not going to help this person's cold have given them, unfortunately, uh, to people who didn't need them because they really wanted them and they think that they would make them better. <laughs> so, right. so I think we might have some evidence there that physicians have done this in the past um, to feed into the patient's interests uh, and saying, oh, sure, then this, then this should work. Mm-hmm. If you think it's going to work, <laughs> here, I'll give it to you. And, uh, and, and unfortunately, we're in a, not a great situation right. because of that. And we probably should at this point present the caveat that, you know, if you need serious medical attention, that um, the placebo is, of course, not a substitute for actually getting treatment. It, it just feeling better in, in many situations is not all you want. You want to actually be better. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to give people that. I know that oftentimes people will say of, of questionable practices, something like homeopathy, for, for instance, but they'll say that, well, it made me feel better, and isn't that all that really matters? And like, mm-hmm. oh, well, not, no, not if you have... Depends, right. <laughs> not if you have right. In- influenza. Right, uh, <laughs> right. Um, so if you could fight it itself, and your mindset helped to fight this thing, then I am on board with that. But most of the time, if you're talking about I'm taking a fake substance to help this progressive cancer in my, uh, you know, <laughs> that, that might not, uh, it might not cut it. I mean, that, that's, that's the question. Where are the limits of the placebo effect? Yeah. Where are they? And I, well, I don't think we've reached them yet, but I, but I think we, there are. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's exciting in every way to me, because here we are again at the very edge of what we know and scientists, uh, like yourself have the opportunity to push forward what it is we know about the natural world. That's amazing. I love it. Um, one last question to sort of uh, end on a positive note, and that is from um, Aaron Oram asks, how can we use our knowledge of the placebo effect to just simply feel better and lead better lives? Mm. Well, um, I don't know that our data speak to that directly. Um, our data suggest that the placebo effect is definitely... We have not reached the limits yet, and the more non-traditional looks that we have at the placebo effect, you know, keeps suggesting that, you know, the sky really is the limit. Um, With that said, there are other parts of psychology that 
perhaps have addressed this in a broader way. Um, if you think about just optimism and the, the whole literature on optimism and health in health psychology uh, suggests that, you know, optimists, with few exceptions, uh, lead longer, healthier lives than pessimists. So, um, so mindset in that sense, perhaps as a personality characteristic, uh, is something that can, um, can contribute more broadly. Uh, we cannot, like I said before, go into the doctor and say, give me a placebo or, or say uh, to, your, to your husband or wife, will you tell me that I had a good night's sleep last night? <laughs> you know? I mean, I guess we could, but, but that would get, we, we would figure it out pretty quickly. You know? right. So, um, so the, the direct application of this study to making our lives better is not necessarily, um, it's, it, that bridge hasn't been built with right. every brick. But, um, but I think the extension of uh, the placebo effect into these non-traditional areas like sleep. Um, uh, I mean, there's new things on sham acupuncture and, and things like that. I think that suggests that um, we, we haven't, A, we haven't reached the limits, and B, we're connecting up with another literature in psychology uh, that has been there also but has been approaching from a macro perspective, this how personality and the way you appraise your your situations really also matters. Mm-hmm. Um, so this this optimism versus pessimism and and the manner in which you you appraise your situation and your coping strategies and things like that. So so it might be that these two literatures are going to meet in the middle at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I think those those are two two viable avenues to look at. Mm-hmm. And just the very idea that belief, I you know. From a very reductionist and um, you know objective standpoint, belief is is, is just sort of fairy dust, and it just floats mm-hmm. in the ether. Mm-hmm. And, and this research suggests, as, yeah. as lots of other research suggests, that belief directly translates to biological right. effects, and, right. and that's that's an important thing to know about your brain. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think belief, um, and and again, we're not talking about fairy dust beliefs. We're not talking necessarily. Um, uh, about anything that we don't feel that at some point we could measure, right? Uh, you know, so so beliefs are directly related to changes in the chemistry and electricity of your brain, <laughs> and so because beliefs those, are chemistry and electricity right. in the, to begin with, right? Exactly, and so therefore those patterns of chemistry and electricity that have been associated with these other things in your life, uh, your gut peptides, for instance, and your movement and your, uh, then those, those are patterns that we can tap into, uh, over the course of time. When I, when I talk in introductory psychology to my students and we'll, I'll draw a neuron up at the board and, uh, you know, and I'll say, well, this is how it works at this, at this point. And then I'll say times a billion, because that's that's what is actually happening. You know, we're very very complicated, but our brain is so fabulous in making connections without our conscious awareness of them, and uh, and then and and then doing things without our conscious awareness and making decisions without our conscious awareness. And so uh, so in that sense, I think this you know belief is 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 to me from a very reductionistic perspective is is just translating to patterns of behaviors that affect other things in your in your body that is a great place to uh head out i love it um (laughs) like people are going to want to um 
find you, keep up with you, learn more about what you're up to, <laughs> how can someone find you on the internet? Well, I'm actually pretty easy to find because I have somewhat of a unique name with a unique spelling. I think there's only two Christy Erdals in the United States. So um, the Christy is K-R-I-S-T-I. The last name is Erdal, E-R-D-A-L, and I'm a professor at Colorado College. And uh, so if people do have questions, I'm happy to, uh, to answer them. And... Um, uh, it's a fun conversation to have. Yeah, and what are you working on next? What's what's coming right. up next? Well, um, next I do have another paper in a, in a completely different direction with a student that's in the pipeline right now, and she was looking at post-traumatic stress disorder in Uganda. So, a very different a very different uh, thesis that she uh, that she did. But for my own uh, interests. Uh, I'm a clinical neuropsychologist, and I've done research in in sport-related concussion and things like that. And uh, I'm really interested in, actually, for the first time, and maybe I could get your uh, input on this, is writing a book about youth sports. And oh, yeah. We'll talk, we'll talk about that, sure. Everything we're doing wrong uh, in the United States in contrast to the research. Um, so so that's my next, uh, my next big project. Uh, the... the other um, interest in sports superstitions uh, that that we've done with uh, another student of mine did a paper on uh, is I think connects connects the superstitious superstition research along with the placebo research in really interesting ways too. So great. Well, uh, I love that you're doing all this work, and I really appreciate it. And I thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. This was really fun. And now we take a break from our show for a word from our sponsors. You Are Not So Smart is now sponsored by Warby Parker Eyeglasses. I like this company because they do something great for the world in addition to creating a product and making money off of that product, but doing so in a way that is nice, easy, forward thinking, and better yet, it improves the world. So here's the idea. Every time you buy a pair of glasses from Warby Parker, they're about $95. They start about that price, lenses included. They will give a pair of glasses to someone in need. Now, this is how they put it. Eyeglasses I wear with a purpose. Almost 1 billion people worldwide lack access to glasses, and that means that 15% of the global population cannot effectively learn or work, a problem that Warby Parker is determined to address. They've partnered with nonprofits like Vision Spring to ensure that for every pair of glasses that they sell, another pair is distributed to someone in need. And as Warby Parker says, we believe that everyone has a right to see. So here's what you do. You go to warbyparker.com slash so smart, and if you use that URL, you will get free three-day shipping. And what you do is you go to the website, you see all these different glasses, different frames, and you can use their little program there to decide exactly what you're looking for. Men, women's, uh, do you want shades? Do you want prescription glasses? And uh, round, square, black, what do you want? You get the glasses, you pick out the frames, you pick out five of them, you look at them on models, you move the model's head around, you can also upload a picture of yourself and look at yourself with the glasses on. And then they ship that to your house, you take out, or your apartment, <laughs> and they, you take out the glasses and you put them on your eyes and you look at yourself in the mirror and you take pictures of yourself and you decide the ones that you actually like. And you'll be surprised because I, I did this and the ones that I thought that I would like were not the ones that I actually uh, got. 
And then you send back the box and you complete your order and they turn right around and send it straight back again. And you get glasses and you do it through the internet so that it doesn't cost $300 for a pair of frames that, um, that just simply, that's just an insane price to pay for glasses. Uh, as they put it, it's a collaboration between close friends. Warby Parker was conceived as an alternative to the overpriced and bland eyewear available today. Prescription eyewear should not cost more than $300 because the industry is controlled by a few large companies that have kept prices artificially high, reaping huge benefits and profits from consumers who have no other options. By circumventing traditional channels, Warby Parker can engage with customers directly through their website and they're able to provide higher quality, better looking prescription eyewear at a fraction of the price. So go to warbyparker.com slash so smart, check out what they've got and get yourself a cool pair of glasses for a good cause today. This episode is also brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code DUMDUM, D-U-M-D-U-M. Now, Squarespace is constantly improving their platform with new features and new designs, and they also have great support. And one of the new things that they have is commerce. Squarespace recently added e-commerce to their platform, so you if you want to set up a shop and sell things and you've always wondered, how do you do that? How do you get all the pieces together? What do you, what do you do? Where do you go? You just go to Squarespace and everything is there. You can set everything up in just a few minutes and start selling things immediately. It's easy. It's just drag and drop and you can add content straight from your desktop or rearrange things on the fly. And as soon as you let go of your mouse, boom, it is there on the website live and ready to be played with by people who want to see your stuff or buy your things. They have 24 seven support and you can call them up at any time and talk to their support team in New York city or do a live chat during the week. And they also have fast email support throughout the day and night. It's design focused. Squarespace cares about design. Everything they do is about clean, nice, interesting, beautiful templates. And you have connected accounts through Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Pinterest, Instagram, Google, and all the other stuff. So it all works seamlessly. And every Squarespace website has its own unique mobile experience so that your site scales and looks the same across all devices. So all you have to do is you start a trial today with no credit card required, and you can start building that website. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure you use this code, dumdum, D-U-M, D-U-M, and you will get 10% off. And also it shows your support for the You Are Not So Smart podcast. It helps us out, keeps the show going. We thank Squarespace for their support and we believe that Squarespace is correct when they say that Squarespace is everything you need to create an exceptional website. And now we return to our program. The You Are Not So Smart podcast is proud to say that it is part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. And in that family of podcasts, you're going to find all sorts of uh, shows about um, really just about interviewing and communicating with and learning from people who are or who are experts, who have done interesting things. And uh, you just sort of pick the flavor of information you want to engage with. Um, one that I think you might want to want to check out and it's kind of strange maybe considering that this show is not about this sort of thing but i like it it's it's a there's a 
a podcast in the Boing Boing family called Recommended If You Like, and it's uh, done by Brian Heater, and he just talks to musicians and cartoonists, writers, and creative people. And his there's an episode recently with Colin Spolman, who wrote a book on home whiskey distillation, and he has a micro distillery. You know, you've heard of micro breweries. Well, he has a micro distillery in New York City, and uh, it's only four years old. And he talks about how really, really hard it was to put this thing together and how hard it is to make and, and, and to just do whiskey making. Um, the book is the Kings County distillery guide to urban moonshining, how to make and drink whiskey. And it's really, really neat. And it's a neat interview. Uh, and if you're interested in moonshine and in how, what it takes to get a still going, go check out this podcast recommended. If you like part of the boing, boing family of podcasts. Now, what starts with the letter C? Cookie starts with C. Let's think of other things that starts with C. Uh, ah, who cares about other things? C. On each cookie. episode of the That's You Are Not So enough. Smart podcast, I read a piece of self delusion news or a scientific study while I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or reader. You can send your recipes to David at youarenotsosmart.com. And if I pick and bake and eat your recipe, you get a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book, or, and I'm doing this more lately, sending out uh, copies of, a signed copy for you, of You Can Beat Your Brain, which is the UK title for You Are Now Less Dumb, my second book. I know that's complicated, but look, I have, a, I have two books. The second one is You Are Now Less Dumb, but in the UK, that book is known as you can beat your brain. So you will get that book and I will also post the recipe and the winner and the photos and everything else at youarenotsosmart.com as well as the You Are Not So Smart Pinterest page. Now this week, the recipe comes from Natalie Sun. So she sent in this cookie called Oreo White Chocolate Cookies and it's softened butter, brown sugar, white sugar, eggs, vanilla, flour, salt, soda, baking soda that is, uh, white chocolate chips, and chopped up Oreos, an Oreo instant pudding mix, which I, I had no idea until this, that there was such a thing. Uh, but here's the thing. This cookie is a cookie made of cookies. You you chop up cookies, you grind them up, and you put them in another cookie. You make a cookie from cookies. How far can this go? That's the question that, that entered my mind immediately. In this infinite recursion, this, uh, this hall of mirrors made of cookie dough, how deep can we go? And you know what? I want to know if I can take the cookie that we just made, grind it up, add more ingredients, and make a cookie from the cookie made from cookies. Uh, it's a rabbit hole, and I'm going to jump down that hole. <laughs> okay, so this cookie is, um, I'm looking, you know, this cookie smells wonderful. Mm, yeah, and it, it's, I have one cookie here, and it is filling up this entire room with the, with the aroma of wonderfulness. Uh, and although it's made from Oreos partially, it just looks like it's been dusted with Oreo powder. Um, it, it actually is sort of a blonde colored cookie with white chocolate chips poking out in every direction, but the, uh, with a light dusting of, uh, Oreo powder. And, uh, let's, let's see what it's all about. Here we go. I'm going to move away from the microphone because you weirdos think that chewing is awful or something. So I'm going to move away. Oh, no. Oh, hello there. Yes. I would like uh, two tickets, please. 
To a land where everything is wonderful and nothing is terrible? Mm, yes, well, first you must eat this. <laughs> All aboard! You know, I love this <laughs> It's got, um, okay. Uh, this cookie is, it's like, you know, yeah, okay. Maybe I do come from a place, you know, where uh, maybe you consider an Oreo lowbrow. Well, my parents were salt of the earth, son. And I, I, I'm proud of where I came from. This, this cookie's proud of where it came from, okay? Maybe you're one of those Hydrox uh, hipsters who uh, you only want to eat the original uh, uh, mass-produced uh, chocolate wafer with cream in the middle. Um but the, you get out of here. You leave. This is not for you. You just don't, just never come back because this is about people who know their roots. Okay. Oreos are good. I don't care if uh, they constitute some percentage of Walmart's profit margin. They're good. And you grind them up and you turn them into another cookie. That's like putting a crown on the cookie. It's elevating it. It's, it's turning something into royalty and we can all be whoever we want to be. Okay. That's what this cookie's telling me. This is what Natalie's son is telling me. We can all be whatever we want to be. That's, that's what makes America. Being able to take a perfectly fine cookie, grind it up, and turning it into a super special cookie. Mmm, so good. So, thank you so much, Natalie's son. You have brightened my day and brightened my life with this wonderful cookie made of cookies. Uh, and if I happen to experiment in making cookies from cookies made of cookies made from cookies made of cookies, I will let you know. But until then, you've got a signed copy of You Can Beat Your Brain on the way. So let's talk about a little bit of psychology news, some self-delusion news. Um, what I have here is an article, and it's uh, it's about a study that's going, it's all over the internet today, uh, the day that I'm recording this. And uh, this is in Pacific Standard. It's a uh, magazine the science of society pacific standard magazine and um you can find this article at psmag.com and the headline is eccentricity of artists boosts appreciation of their art by tom jacobs and it's it's an article about a study that's going around that says that we tend to like artists more if we perceive those artists as being idiosyncratic in other words you think of somebody like Salvador Dali or Lady Gaga or whatever, people who are just uh, uh, weird, a little bit weird. And the more weird they seem to us, the more we believe that their art has value or that we should be paying attention to it. In the uh, article, they talk about how uh, a research team led by uh, psychologist Winyard Van Tilburg, I'm sure I got that wrong, but Winyard Van Tilburg of the University of Southampton uh, has new research that suggests that artists, and I'm reading straight from the article now, uh, an artist conforms to a widely held stereotype that creative geniuses are peculiar people, increases the perception that that artist is gifted. So the finding is comes from the European Journal of Social Psychology, and they offer two caveats according to this article that uh, the work itself has to be a little bit unconventional, and the eccentricity has to be uh, you have to believe that it act that person actually is weird. That they're not putting on a show. So if you think that Lady Gaga actually isn't weird, then this effect does not work. 
Uh, if you think that Salvador Dali is not actually a weird person at heart, does not work. But uh, if you think that uh, Salvador Dali sits around his house and uh, twirls his mustache, I mean, I understand. Yes, the man is dead, but when he was alive, when he if he sat around his house and twirled his mustache and then um, out of the blue decided to paint a, a uh, melting tree on his bathroom mirror, uh, if you think that's the kind of person he was, then you will believe that his art has more value. In the actual study, they mentioned Van Gogh, and uh, some people who had never learned the life story of Van Gogh are to were told that he had cut off his own, a portion of his ear. And uh, other people who had never heard the life story of Van Gogh were not told that information. And uh, then they looked at pictures from Van Gogh, and the people who learned about the ear thing thought that his pictures were better. Um, and they go on to say in the research that this is about adhering to a stereotype. If you believe that in sort of an art, an artist stereotype, that there is a particular thing that makes artists interesting, the more that the person that you're looking at, the more that they conform to that stereotype, the more you believe that they are a real, true, interesting artist, that they have access to something else. You know, they're mainlining uh, some truth. And that means that um, it's actually oddly, oddly enough, we see their eccentricity um, as a form of conformity. They are conforming to our idea of what an artist should be. And if that's a cultural value for you, if you've learned that that's what artists are, then seeing someone as, as eccentric, as truly eccentric, as actually a weirdo, uh, or as a nonconformist, if they conform to your idea of nonconformity, then you will find that whatever they produce is better than someone else who uh, is either perceived to be faking that they're weird or just isn't actually eccentric at all. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about at youarenotsosmart.com. The music beds are by Drew Garraway, and the intro music is by Caravan Palace. We are hosted and supported by Boing Boing. We're one of the Boing Boing podcasts, and we're proud to say it. Go to boingboing.net to find more great podcasts. We're sponsored by Squarespace and by Warby Parker. Check both of those people out. And uh, if you you want merchandise you can go to you are not so smart.com and support the show directly by grabbing a t-shirt a mug or something like that who stuck around to the end the great james burke of connections will be the next guest on the you are not so smart podcast 